But uh, I just read this morning on the news on the internet that a fellow from, where was he from? Pittsburgh, I think, who heard it was going to be 130 degrees in Death Valley, so he rented a car from Vegas and headed over there. He wanted to experience that. And it could set a record. The hottest place ever recorded on earth was in Death Valley at 134. I think it was about 100 years ago. So it could get there. Although I think it's tempered a bit here because of the smoke in the air from fires. So it, uh, it filters a little bit of that heat. So we might not be quite as hot, but we might be <laughs> a little more trouble breathing. But uh, that's the way it is in these times. And believe you me, it's going to get worse. We'll see that today, actually, as we get into the context of where we're going. Uh, I was asked to make an announcement. I, I, In a way, I'm kind of loath to do so because it, in some ways, could be kind of a picky thing, but someone here has received a black mark, uh, or has caused black marks, I guess. Uh, those who clean the hall were somewhat concerned that... Uh, some of our shoes might be scuffing with the heels and marking the floor. And uh, I, the trail actually kind of leads to the ladies' restroom. So maybe for once it isn't the men who are responsible. I don't know. We used to fight this uh, in high school and college. People would wear sneakers or basketball shoes with black soles, and they'd leave black marks all over the hardwood floors. And it was actually quite a little job to clean it up. So... I know finally in college they banned black-soled basketball shoes. I, I don't think we need to go that far here, but uh, you might be aware because some heels will, when, they, when the heel drops, they will tend to scuff the floor a little bit, so I don't know that it's a lady or a girl doing it necessarily. Uh, it could be anybody. I have black soles on these, but they, I don't think they mark. No, they don't. <clears throat> so I guess I don't get the black mark. But anyway, just be aware. That's a, a small thing compared to a lot of issues you face these days. But on the other hand, it does cause a certain amount of extra work for those who have to clean the hall. And probably is unnecessary if we can just be aware of it. And I think that's all the dire announcements I have to make. So uh, we'll continue with other things. We got into Peter because of the emphasis on hope, and he started out in First Peter and the first part of Second Peter with a very positive thing about hope in salvation and hope in God for the solution to the world's problems. Then we got into what some might term a negative thing when he got into uh, those who have negative attitudes toward what God has duly constituted. And with sometimes good reason, because the power that God did give is sometimes abused, and people uh, deal with that, and sometimes they don't deal well with it, and sometimes they have ambitions of being leaders. And it's, uh, it's something that is repeated over and over again in human history, and has been, in my experience with the Church of God over the decades, is that those that clamor the loudest against government immediately want to start teaching and preaching the minute they get out from under that so-called uh, bad government. 
Uh, it isn't so much that they don't want someone to be in charge. They want to be in charge to one degree or another. And that's where the real rub often comes from those who have difficulties with that. Anyway, we come down to the point here where Peter is going to again talk in a very positive way about things that should make us very, very hopeful uh, for things to come in the future. Unfortunately, there are going to be some very dire times ahead first. I read an article just this morning on the Activist Post. I've looked at that one quite a bit lately. Uh, they post a lot of very good articles on there, but Dave Hodges has caught my eye recently as a writer. He's down from southern Arizona somewhere. But he has a 12-year-old son, and he said, I'm trying to give my son hope. I'm trying to give my son opportunity and a chance to have success in life. But he said, the world has changed so much since I was a child. He said, it used to be that they could tell you, do well in school, son, and then you can go to college, and if you do well there, you can get a degree and a good job, and you can live the American dream. And he said, I look around at my son, and I'm thinking, I can't tell him that anymore. He says, they told me when I was young, if America fights a war, that we should volunteer and be patriots and go win the war so that America might remain free. And he said, I look around now, and they're fighting wars only for money and the aggrandizement of mega corporations and that type of thing. How can I tell him to be a patriot and go to war for America? Because that's not what wars are thought about anymore. Actually, in true history, even World War I and World War II, when America entered, had overtones of some of those things that we see in the raw today. Political reasons for sending young men to their deaths so uh, men can get richer. But he said things have changed so much. I don't know what to tell him. He says, you've got to tell your kids someday there's no Santa Claus. So he finally opted to tell his son the truth. And his son said, well, I thought you'd want me to go to war. And he says, no, son, I don't want you to be that type of patriot anymore. Patriotism is to the Constitution and not to various administrations now that are constitutionless. So he said, if it were a fight for the Constitution, maybe so, but you may have to fight the powers that be to preserve the Constitution. So he had a pretty sound talk with his son about the future's pretty bleak. You know, what if, what if you do well in school and you go to college and you get a student debt with enormous interest rates and whatever job you get, flipping burgers, won't pay the interest on your college loan? So it's really hard today to inspire our children to the American dream because it is fast disappearing before our very eyes. And our children do not have that to look forward to. And I mention this because with our young people in the church, they are limited. God says, don't marry outside the beliefs of the truth. Uh, 
don't become unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And the, the context there in 1 Corinthians 7 is about marriage. So, they're very limited on dating possibilities. And some of them are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, unable to marry. And it's a very difficult situation. And it's worse now than it was 25, 30 years ago when the church was all together and there were lots of young people. Now we're so scattered and people have different beliefs here and there to the point that finding someone even in the church of the same beliefs is becoming far and far more difficult and religion becomes an issue even for people who might legitimately be part of the church but in various splinters of it. So it creates, by default, a very difficult situation. And it is difficult to formulate an answer that gives them hope for now. We can only provide hope for later. Now, I have tried to give a little hope in some respects for now because of our understanding that God is going to draw a remnant together and that there will be several years of building the temple and preparing and doing the things of the work of God prior to the Great Tribulation. And there may be a window of opportunity there with quite a few thousand people around. So that is somewhat hopeful, and I think that that change is going to come fairly soon now. Not try to predict dates. But it's easy to grow weary. It's easy to be frustrated by the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Hard not to be frustrated, let's say. But today, Peter is going to give us a great deal of hope, not just for the near future, but for ever. Let's go back to 2 Peter 3. And after he deals with some of the problems of negativity within the church, here he asks them to be stirred up and remember the things of God, uh, the things that the holy prophets wrote, because they have to do with today, they have to do with the near future, and forevermore. We have spent a great deal of time in the prophets in this group because there is so much in there about the near future and the long-term future and what God expects of us in terms of Christian living in the meantime so that we can be a part of the solution, not part of the problem, as most of the world is. He has called out a few to learn the truth that it might be taught. So he said, remember those things that were written and that there will be scoffers in the end time in verse 3 of chapter 3. Uh, who will have their own desires, their own hopes, their own lusts, but their own goals and purposes and even dreams and so on that do not fit what is about to happen. And we have to be realistic, do we not? We might hope this would happen. We might wish this would be there for us. We might set our plans and our dreams for 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road in terms of the fast-fading American dream and it not be there for us. So, if that be the case, there is great disappointment ahead for anyone who chooses to do that. 
we need to face reality and face truth and then deal with it as God says it shall be. And there is hope in that. And some will say, well, it's not coming. Things continue just like they were when the prophets wrote all that stuff a long time ago. Since the beginning of creation, even back to Adam, they say. But then they forget the times that God has intervened. And he mentions some of that. And then he mentions judgment is coming on this earth. And not to get discouraged because it seems longer in terms of our lives and our hopes and dreams physically, because today, a, a day with God is as a thousand years. He is timeless. Time means nothing in that sense to him. Uh, we are very limited because we're going to live roughly 70 years if everything goes well, uh, maybe 80 or 90 by reason of strength, and then in the, it's pretty well up, isn't it? It's all over, all done. And even if we do live to 90, we may be sitting in a rest room drooling on ourselves. So uh, it isn't always a pleasant thing even to go much beyond the 90, I mean the 70 years. So we are limited by earthly bounds, by our own lives. And when you reach the age some of us are, or older than I even, uh, you begin to realize that uh, it isn't too far away. It could catch up at any time. Of course, we don't think that way when we're young. You know, young people die in car accidents and all kinds of things that kill them while they're young. You just don't think about it much until you get older and realize that you're deteriorating in every way and every day. And that it's inevitable. It is coming. Then you begin to think about it more. But he says, don't worry about the timing of these things. That God isn't slack Concerning his promise, he doesn't want people to perish, but that everyone come to repentance, end of verse 9. Now, that's where we stopped last time, and I want to pick it up there. Remember, I said I didn't want to try to finish the chapter because it's a fairly involved thing that Peter is talking about, and we need to understand what it really is speaking of, not just brush over it. Let's dive into it then in verse 10 of Second Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now the timing here is of the day of the Lord. You can read of the day of the Lord here and there throughout all the prophecies and in the book of Revelation and other places in the New Testament as well. Uh, when God begins to truly intervene in the affairs of men on this earth. Now, he, he talks here about the heavens passing away with a great noise and the elements melt with fervent heat. And people think that that means the end of the earth as a globe, as an orb, as a creation. Now, let me go back and explain how Worldwide Church of God looked at this. I went through this in a nine-part series back, oh, when I was still in uh, CGG, entitled, uh, How Exclusive is the Church? And as I started into that, because there are some who thought, well, there are Protestants that will be in the world tomorrow, that will be part of the Bride of Christ. Uh, and... 
generally through religion, it's thought that Satan and God are in a war for souls down here, and that God is losing badly. Uh, so we need to go out and we've got to get people to accept Jesus and uh, get either baptized or dinked or dunked or, or sprinkled or whatever they might do and accept the Lord so they can be saved. So you have all manners of religion doing that today. Uh, and Satan is still winning if you look at the earth, right? There's six and a half going on seven billion people on the earth. And... There are very, very few who have accepted Jesus, to put it their way, out of that. A very, very small minority. So they're going, sending people all over the earth trying to save the world. And it's simply not happening. And in fact, the number of so-called Christians on earth is shrinking in number now, not gaining. <laughs> Partly because others are killing them off in other countries. But Christianity is losing its hope, even as we in the church could be in danger of losing our hope, because they see things deteriorating and getting worse, and they don't see any answers really either, other than a secret rapture that suddenly happens and people are wafted off to heaven, and then the rest of the earth just burns up. Now, let's ask a fundamental question. Do you really think God... Father of all, creator of the universe, creator of the earth, and all the beautiful things that we have here, is a failure as a father. He gives us all kinds of instruction in here about how to be proper fathers in the Bible. And you mean to tell me that in spite of all this instruction, he's going to be a failure? That most people will go to hell in spite of people trying to preach them to heaven? I don't think so. How can he say in Romans eleven twenty six, all Israel shall be saved, when he is set up for failure and Satan's winning the battle? Now, God has a plan that is different than the religions of the world understand. He has a plan that is going to cause most people to opt for and receive eternal life before his plan is finished. Now, we who have been in the church all these years will recognize what I'm about to describe, and that is what happens from, let's say, Feast of Trumpets on in the plan of God. Feast of Trumpets represents, as we understand it, the return of Christ to take his bride back to the Father's throne to be married and have a year-long honeymoon, as Deuteronomy 24, I think it is, points out that when a man is married, he isn't to work or be made to work, but he's have a year off for a honeymoon to cheer up his new wife. So they are to spend that year becoming bonded Today's society doesn't much allow for that because you've got to be on the job making minimum wage uh, every week of the year, every year, uh, so you don't have that luxury. But that's what God intended from the beginning, and I think that Christ is going to fulfill that. I think the Scriptures will show it. But at any rate, in worldwide, they didn't understand that. They thought Christ was going to come, would meet him in the air, and come right back down and start the immediate millennial reign, even though 
Gerald Waterhouse did teach that we'd go to the Father's throne and be married there, but I guess he assumed that it would be a quickie and would rush right back down here. And that would be the end of that. But the conventional thinking was that uh, Christ would return, would have a thousand-year millennium, and then the eighth day of the feast represented the, resurrect, the general resurrection of all people who had never had a chance at salvation from Adam until that time. And whether they were babies or sinners or non-religious or whatever they might be, and indeed, Revelation 20 does say that the rest of the dead, apart from the first fruits, will not live until the thousand years is finished. So we looked upon that as a time when those people at the end of the millennium would all be resurrected, they would have their opportunity at salvation, and then they would either be changed or burned up in the lake of fire, and that the earth would become a charred cinder. No flesh would be saved alive, because everyone by then would either be in the kingdom of God, eternal and immortal, or they would be burned up when the earth was burned up, and that would be the end of the plan. That was the way it was taught. From my research, the best I found was that Leroy Neff is the first one that promulgated that, and Ted Armstrong picked up on it. He was the first I remembered saying it, because he quoted Revelation 21.5, when it says, uh, I create all things new. So they would go to Peter, where it says everything will be dissolved, and then they'd go to that, where it sounds like everything is created again from scratch, as far as the earth is concerned. And that became generally accepted in the church. I don't know whether Herbert Armstrong ever really examined it or not, but it was preached at almost every Feast of Tabernacles and last great day that was ever uh, administered within the church. So it became our mainstream doctrine about how the plan of God would end up. Well, I began to find that that is not based on Scripture. We quoted Isaiah 65:17 about how he'll create new heavens and a new earth, and we're, we thought that was talking about that time after the great white throne judgment and the earth had been burned up and uh, all the wicked were burned at that time, and that was the end of it. But I began to focus there a little bit and find out that wasn't true. Now, he does say here, and... 2 Peter 3, verse 10. The time of the day of the Lord, it'll sneak up on you. He said there in Luke 21, don't let it sneak up on you. Uh, be aware, parable of the fig tree, it's in Mark 13 and in, I think, Matthew 21, if I recall. Uh, where it says if a, leaf, a fig tree puts on leaves, just like you see a fig tree in the springtime putting on leaves, and you see all these things that we're talking about in the prophecies starting to happen around you, no, the time is near. So, go to the book of Joel, and it talks about some horrific things that are going to be happening on the earth, and almost the whole book of Joel is about the day of the Lord, the day when God begins to truly intervene in the affairs of men on this earth. But, what or where is Peter getting his information? Uh, let's look, look look at verse 12. 
looking for and hasting to the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. So they use what Peter said to say that the earth is going to be completely burned up and will have a totally new heaven and a new earth. Where does he get his information? The same place Ellen G. White got hers, the, seventh, the leader of the Seventh-day Adventist Church after it split off from the truth. She wrote a book called The Great Controversy, and in it she quoted Isaiah 24. So I want to go back there and show you that not only... When, when <laughs> they used to teach us in Ambassador that she misused and abused Isaiah 24... and pointed out where she abused it. But lo and behold, the church did the exact same thing to Isaiah 24. They didn't come back here. They just quoted 2 Peter 3 and forgot about Isaiah 24. But here it says, Behold, the Eternal makes the earth empty. Well, that sounds like it's empty. You turn a glass upside down and pour the water out, you have an empty glass, right? So what does empty mean? and makes it waste, and turns it upside down, and scatters abroad the inhabitants thereof. Now, Ellen G. White, when she was writing her book, would quote parts of Isaiah 24 and even parts of verses. I don't know, remember now exactly which ones she used entirely, but what she would do was, like in verse 1, if it's one she used, Earth empty, make it waste, upside down, and then she'd leave off, scatter abroad the inhabitants thereof. Oh, you mean they're still inhabitants? Well, yeah, they're scattered, but they're still there. So empty doesn't mean what we might think. Perhaps the term nearly empty would best fit when you put the whole thing together. But what he's talking about here is a great deal of destruction. We can go to Daniel and show that when this is all done, Christ will sit down at the beginning of the millennium to judge 100 million people. That's all that will be left, apparently, upon the face of the earth out of six and a half billion or so. That's way less than 10 percent. A hundred million is only 10 percent of one billion. A thousand billion is a uh, thousand million is a billion. So a hundred million is only 10% of a billion. And we got six and a half billion. So he's, Daniel is saying way less than 10% of the people on earth will be left. I didn't figure up the exact percentage there considering the population of the earth today, but it would be way under 10%. So that's pretty empty. Even if you empty a glass of water, there's still a little in the bottom, isn't there? Unless you dry it out, you don't get it all. And it shall be, as with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, the taker of usury and the giver of usury. In other words, it's not going to play any favorites. The earth is basically going to be emptied. The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled. She would quote that, and I suppose we would if we wanted to try to support our past doctrine of 2 Peter 3, 8 and 10. 
The earth mourns and fades away, the world languishes and fades away, the haughty people of the earth do languish. So there are still some people there in order to languish. The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof. So he's saying that we've defiled the earth, therefore it is going to be uh, decimated. Even more than decimated, that means 10%. Therefore has the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. So already we begin to see that our idea of an earth burning up and no man left is wrong. This is the section, has to be, that Peter quoted from. Because it's the only thing that fits what he said. Now, people might say, well, yeah, you're speaking of the day of the Lord. You're not speaking of after the great white throne judgment. Well, duh. What did Peter say? The day of the Lord will come as a thief of the night. He was addressing the same period of time. He was not addressing 1,100 years later. He was addressing the day of the Lord. Let's get the timing right if we're to understand. Now, I may not cover this in the detail I did in that script, in that uh, series, because I, it was fresh and I had just proven it, and I had all the scriptures clearly in mind, and I might leave some points out. So you might want to go back to that. Some of you have heard it. Some of you probably have not. But uh, that little series of nine sermons probably had more correcting of understanding for the church than any that I know of. The minor prophets helped us understand what happened to the church and prophecy and what will happen. And there was a great deal of information that those minor prophets had that we simply didn't understand about the end time and what has happened to the church and what will happen to it in a positive way. So it corrected a lot of things. But that little series on how exclusive is the church uh, helped understanding in a lot of areas, and this was one of them. Uh, let's go on down. I don't want to read the whole thing. Uh, let's see verse 19. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. See, that's the same language Peter used. Dissolved. That sounds like you drop something in acid and it just disappears. Nothing left. But what does it say? The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall be removed like a cottage, like a house in the tornado, if you will. And the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and not rise again. The society, the culture, the way of Satan that has been will never more be. Verse 21, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Eternal shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high, and the kings of the earth upon the earth. So this is again speaking of the day of the Lord, when God begins to punish the nations and kingdoms and leaders and rulers of the world and the inhabitants who are disobedient to him who are here on the earth. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit. Not killed, all of them, but some gathered as prisoners in the pit. And be shut up in the prison, and after many days shall they be visited. 
Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the eternal of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. So the day of the Lord, spoken of in many prophecies, ends when Christ returns gloriously to reign on the earth for a thousand years. That is when he will reign gloriously before his ancients, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses, and on and on. Hebrews 11, if you will. So, there are few men left. Now let's go to Isaiah 65. And see something here that we overlooked for so many years in the church of God. There are some things that simply were not restored. Herbert Armstrong had a lot of truth. He restored a lot of things, but he didn't restore at all. He was not the Elijah to come who restored all things. There are many, many things that probably still need to be restored. Like the true Jerusalem and like the cities of Judah that have been waste all these generations. They have to be raised up. And he says, someone will do it. I hope we can be part of that. Anyway, go to Isaiah 65. Here we quoted verse 17, probably on the last great day of the feast more often than any. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. And we quoted one verse, tried to support our false doctrine, and moved on. He goes on to describe the new heavens and the new earth. Now, we said in it, the earth would have been burned to a cinder and no human being would be left alive that either be in the kingdom of God or burned up at that point, right after the great white throne judgment. I create a new heaven and a new earth. The former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be you glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. That means there's going to be a Jerusalem in the new heavens and new earth, and people will be there. Does that mean people who have been changed into spirit or human beings? Let's go on. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people, and the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that has not filled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. So in the new heavens and the new earth, lo and behold, we have children who grow old and die, and we have sinners who are accursed. In other words, judgment is still being worked in the new heavens and the new earth. Wow. Now it describes human things. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, long lived. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the eternal, and their offspring with them. 
they're still going to be having babies in the new heaven and new earth, offspring. It's already mentioned infants that die a hundred years old. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. That sounds like Isaiah 11, isn't it? Or doesn't it? Well, that's the one we always read at the Feast of Tabernacles. Within the millennium, the wolf and the lamb would lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall hurt, not hurt, nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Eternal. This is indeed speaking of the millennium. Same as Isaiah 11. It is when Christ is reigning gloriously on the earth, and he will have enforced peace without Satan around. Let's go to chapter 66 and see some more of that in verse 22. Isaiah 66, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Eternal, so shall your seed and your name remain. Our children will remain in the new heavens and new earth. That's the subject here. It's the antecedent to what is coming. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Eternal. What could be clearer than that? In the new heavens and new earth, all flesh will come worship before God. So our idea of the earth being burnt with cinder and nothing left at the end of the millennium and great white throne judgment, the earth are here, there will still be flesh on earth coming up to worship before God. And they, the flesh, the people that come up to worship, they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Remember the prophecy in Ezekiel about how it will take seven years to bury the dead when this holocaust is all over? And if you see a bone sticking out somewhere, you put a flag there so they can come bury it. So people who die in this end time charring, burning, dissolving of the earth and the elements are going to die... And the survivors, the flesh, because it is going to be a monumental task to finally get them all buried and out of sight. I, this is so plain, I don't know why we could not understand it. Now, let's go to Revelation 21, because this is the one that they used to show that the earth would all be burned up and everything created new. Now, this is the other place. There's three places in the Bible that new heavens and new earth are mentioned. We've looked at three of those. Second Peter 3.13, uh, Isaiah 65, and Isaiah 66. Now, the same thing is mentioned here. Uh, it's the only other place new heaven and new earth is mentioned. It just, this is just not plural but it's the only other place. And I saw a new, a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Now, we interpreted that without looking at Isaiah 65 and 66 closely as meaning that the earth would be completely gone and no more water, no more sea. Uh, Ezekiel 47 explains that. Ezekiel 47, I think it's about verse 8. Uh, yeah. Then said he to me, These waters issue out toward the east country and go down into the desert and go into the sea, which being brought forth to the sea, the waters shall be healed. Now, what does that mean? Verse 11 explains it. But the miry places thereof and the marshes thereof shall not be healed, they shall be given to salt. So when this Ezekiel's temple is built, water will issue from beneath the temple and it will cleanse the waters around. Uh, Revelation 22, the beginning of it, speaks of this, coming out from the throne of the Father and the Son, that the water will come out to heal the nations. What does it do? Does it destroy water, that there's no more water left on the earth? No. It turns the salt water into fresh water so that it's potable, drinkable, helpful for human beings. There'll be no more seas. In other words, all the water on earth will be fresh. There'll still be water, but it'll be fresh. Except in some back eddies and marshes thereof where there will still be salt. Now, I think in terms of speaking spiritually, that certainly means that in the millennium, God's reign is going to be almost entire. And peace will be brought to the earth and to the nations, but there will be some small areas where rebellion festers. And it is not turned pure. I think that's obvious from Zechariah 14, where it talks about how those from Mitzrayim will not come up to keep the feast. They'll get no rain. And they'll probably finally be convinced, I better go to the feast. And even when Satan is released for a little season at the end of the millennium, God will give him that. He's going to cut things somewhat short here, but he's promised Satan the full 7,000 years. So I think, this is speculation, but it fits, I think, what period of time it is cut a little bit short now will be given him then. He's only released for a very short season but he goes forth to deceive the nations, and he has quite a bit of success. They're in Revelation 20 and back in the prophecies in Ezekiel. So there'll be a little salt left in the marshy areas, but the earth will essentially be healed. So when it says there'll be no more sea, it doesn't mean there'll be no more water. If you have a few inhabitants left and a regenerating population having children, you've got to have water. And the new heavens and the new earth include water and children and sinners being accursed. We've already read that. So, this has to fit what is described in Isaiah 65, 66, and 2 Peter 3. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So, 
beginning of the new heavens and the new earth, which are the millennium, the bride of Christ, the heavenly city, will come down. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away all tears from their eyes, and be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Now, who is he speaking of here? The whole inhabitants of the earth? No. He's speaking of the bride, the 144,000. They will see no more death. They will have no more sorrows, no more tears. And they will have things so beautiful that they will not think of the things that are in the past anymore. They'll be looking forward from that moment on to a wonderful life that is ahead. Now, we've already read in Isaiah 65 that in the new heavens and new earth, sinners will die accursed. So, even in new heavens and new earth, it doesn't mean there won't be sin. It doesn't mean there won't be death. And with death among humans comes tears and sorrow, doesn't it? But for us, if we're part of the bride of Christ, we will never suffer those things again. And that's the context here. It's not talking about the whole earth. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. In other words, he is going to make them all new again. He's going to restore them to the way they were in the Garden of Eden. He's not going to recreate everything because he just burned it up. Why do you burn it up and then start from scratch again? Yeah, we have polluted it. There's no doubt about it. He says in Revelation back earlier that woe to those that pollute the earth. And he is about to turn the whole thing upside down. And the valleys will be exalted and the hills made low. And there's going to be a lot of change and consternation on the earth. And he is going to purify it with the purifying waters that come from under his throne to flush this place out. To make it clean and pure and wholesome again like it was in the days of Adam and Eve before rebellion occurred. Now, is it going to be just the waters? Has he got other miracles in mind? I don't know exactly how he's going to do it, but I do know he's going to purify it. He's going to make it like new again, totally refurbish it. And it will be during a time when there are still people living on the earth that this happens. Remember, this was introduced, verse 1, new heavens, new earth. And we'll see as we go on down that there still be wicked around at that time, just like Isaiah says. Uh, so he's going to make things as new. Uh, let's tie Acts 33 in with that. Acts 3, I think it's about verse 21. Nine, uh, yeah. Well, let's see verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Eternal. So we're to be converted that our sins might be given and God is going to refresh. He doesn't say here completely recreate, but refresh, spiffy up, make clean, make new light. And he shall send Emmanuel, which before was preached to you, whom the heaven must receive 
until the times of restitution of all things which God has spoken of by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. Now let's dissect that a bit and understand what Luke is saying here in Acts 3. He's going to send Christ, who was preached to you. Now, Christ had died, been resurrected, gone back to His Father's throne when this was written. Whom the heaven must receive. So Christ is going back to His throne with His Father, as He did. And He said the heavens would receive Him. He would be there until the times of the restitution of all things. Now, when the time comes, therefore, for the restitution of all things, He will return to restore them. When does He return? At the end of the day of the Lord, right after the seven last plagues. Well, He comes for His bride right at the end of the tribulation, the 1260th day. And then He goes with His bride to be married before the Father's throne, spends a year honeymoon and comes back because the seven last plagues will occur on the earth for a year, and he will return then to reign. And his Father will come with, and the new heavens and new earth, and the bride will come as well. That's what Revelation 21 is talking about. So the time of restitution then begins when Christ returns to the earth to rule, Revelation 5.10, when will be kings and priests with him and reign on the earth. This earth that will have survived. Does restoring all things and making all things new necessarily mean that everything has to be totally destroyed and recreated? Let me show you another one in 2 Corinthians 5. I think verse 17 on this one. 2 Corinthians 5. Here, here Paul says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So Paul uses the analogy of the new heavens and the new earth and the restoration of all things and uses a human being being converted, baptized, receiving God's Spirit, and walking in newness of life, as he puts it in another place, as creating all things new. Now, when you go down into the water, to be baptized. Do you die there? No, we pull you back up. We let you breathe again. Now, we could hold you under. You're pretty vulnerable at that moment. And you would die. Just hold you till the bubbles come and it's all over. But it's only figurative. The old man, the old way of thinking is to die. But you know what? You're baptized. You're working at changing things in your life to fit God's Word. But even though you've received God's Spirit with a laying on of hands, as it says, 
you find within a short time, be it minutes, hours, days, I doubt anybody has gone longer than that, before you'll have another wrong thought that is contrary to God's way and His will. Something selfish, something lustful, something whatever it might be. So you will find that even in the new heavens and the new earth, which he's using here as a metaphor, with a new life, there will still be the old there. You're supposed to be walking forward in newness of life, never sinning again, but you still do. So even in the new heavens and the new earth, people will still be human, Sinners will still sin and be accursed and judged for it. Just as we, who are to be walking in newness of life, a new creation, still have our faults and our weaknesses. And that's the way it will be in the new heavens and the new earth. And Paul uses the perfect metaphor here to try to describe what life was for us as a human and what it should be, but we don't always accomplish it. Now, for those who've been changed and immortal who become the bride of Christ, the 144,000 firstfruits, there'll be no more misery, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. But for the human beings who are left, few inhabitants, remember, those things will still exist and will be there to help guide them through life so that they make right choices and ultimately become a part of the kingdom of God as well. <coughs> So he said to me, it is done, I am Alpha and Omega, Omega, the beginning and the end. I'm back in Revelation 21.6. I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. So even though changing the seas to fresh water are a parallel or a metaphor, his living work will begin to change people so that they are no longer selfish, lustful, greedy, envious, vain, and all those things that compose a human being today. They can come and drink of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcomes shall inherit all things. Now, we will already, if we're part of the 144,000, have inherited all things. We will have already overcome, as Revelation 2 and 3 tell us, clearly we have to do in order to be part of the first fruits in the kingdom of God. But here you have people, lo and behold, in the new heaven and new earth, it's still talking about that, who still have to overcome. You and I, if we're in the first resurrection, will not need to overcome anymore. Done deal. We will by then be perfectly mature, changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye into immortal, eternal beings who will no more be tempted or desire to sin in any way. I can hardly wait. I cannot grasp that, but I believe it. But there will still be those in the new, new heavens and new earth who still have to overcome, and they will then inherit eternal life. But notice verse 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So any who fail to follow God's way and overcome, even in the new heavens and new earth, 
will ultimately be put to death in a fire that will burn, but it won't burn up the earth. It will just burn up the wicked. There came to me one of the seven angels, and this will, this will give you the time again, again in verse 9. There came to me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me, saying. So the same one who appeared to John in this vision was the one who had had the seven last plagues in his hand. He did not still have them. This is past tense. They had come and gone. So, when he showed him the new heavens and new earth and the bride coming down in the holy city, it was right after the seven last plagues. And instead of plagues that this angel was holding, now he's holding a message of what is coming next. The new heavens and new earth, beginning of the millennium, end of the seven last plagues. So, that's the timing. And talk with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. So she was coming down at the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth, right after the seven last plagues, which occur for a year, which may be cut short, uh, after the Great Tribulation. And he carried me away, verse 10, in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So he who had the seven last plagues had emptied them out, and now he was showing what is next. Having the glory of God and the light was like to a stone most precious, and then he describes the city in physical terms. 12,000 times 12,000 cubits and so on, or furlongs. Anyway, it works out to 144,000. And the head of each one of those tribes were the apostles of the Lamb. So each one of them will rule over 12,000 of the Bride of Christ, or 11,999 if you want to be picky, uh, under him, he would be one of the 12,000 in each of the tribes. 12 times 12 is 144,000. Anyway, he describes it. We will not spend time there. Let's go to verse 22 and down because it gives you more of an idea of what happens in these new heavens and new earth. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. So the Father and the Son are coming down after the seven last plagues with the new Jerusalem. Well, now we always taught that... It was after the 1100 years, the earth was charred, then it would be totally recreated, the whole universe, and then the Father would come down, uh, and only Christ would be here during the millennium and the great white throne judgment. But if you understand the timing of this, the Father and the Son are coming down together, but Christ will be all in all, or He will be the one who is given the direct rule. The Father will still be in charge, of course. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Now notice verse 24, And the names of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. So when the Father and the Son are on the earth, there will still be nations who bring glory to God. That's people. 
And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination, or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So there will still be sinners around, but they will not be allowed in this city. The gates will not be shut. They don't need to be, because no one will be allowed to go there who is sinning. Now, does those written in the book of life narrow it down to only those who have been made immortal at the time the Father and the Son are here? No. Your name and mine are already written in the book of life, are they not? Isn't that spoken of without doing a little word study here? That our names are already written in the book of life. And God will not take them out of there unless we push the issue. If we become bitter, if we turn from God we can be a shipwreck. Now, Paul even said that of himself, that he could become a castaway after all the things that he understood. Was Paul once saved, always saved? No, not the way he talked. He said, I could still be a castaway, even after he had been an apostle for years. So anyone can fall from grace. It's not once saved, always saved, as the Protestants would tell you. We don't continue to obey God's laws. Grace will be removed. Grace is unmerited pardon. Pardon that we don't deserve that came through the blood of Christ. But if we continue in sin, that pardon and forgiveness will be removed and we will be burned in the lake of fire. That's what he says. So it's not law or grace, it's law and grace. You keep the law, you're given pardon. You break the law, pardon is removed, and you pay for your own sins. It's that simple. I'll show you my... Grace comes by faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. True. But, he says, I'll show you my faith by my works. So grace and faith work together, but faith has to be a living faith based upon obedience, or it is a dead faith and does you no good. People twist Paul very badly. Peter even comments on that here in a little bit. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, chapter 22, verse 1, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there a tree of life. Um, I looked at my watch there and lost my place. Which, are, which bore twelve manner of fruits, which yielded her fruit every month in the... The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. So here's this river and these fruits growing on either side of it. The water and the fruit heal the nation. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be entered, and the servants shall serve Him and see His face. They won't need light. I'm just skipping down. Uh, Let's get to the end of this story, verse 10. And he said to me, See not, uh, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy. In other words, when it comes down to this point, it's going to be too late. Now, God gives us all space to repent, does He not? 
But there's going to come a point where it's too late for that. I come quickly and my reward is with me. So he says, don't let this sneak up on you as a thief in the night, the day of the Lord. That's what Peter's talking about, Second Peter 3. The day of the Lord. When Christ begins to intervene is the timing, not 1,100 years later. So he says, I'm coming, I'm coming quickly, be ready. Verse 14, blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and they enter in through the gates into the city. For without, that is outside the city, are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loves and makes a lie. So those who obey will be part of the kingdom of God, the first fruits, the bride of Christ, and they will have eternal life. But outside that, there will still be sinners. That's why Isaiah 65 can say in the new heavens and new earth, the sinner who is accursed, because they will still be around. They just won't be allowed in the city. And if they don't repent, they will ultimately be burned up. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, notice verse 17, And the Spirit and the Bride. So the Spirit of God and the Bride, the 144,000 firstfruits, say, Come, and let him that hears say, Come, and let him that is athirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. So he's describing a time during the new heavens and new earth, when the bride will have already been installed as the wife of Christ and will be ruling on the earth in the new heavens and the new earth, and she will offer, through the Spirit of God, salvation to those who are still human and sinning on the earth. Wow! How did we miss all this? Now, let's go back to 2 Peter 3. I know I'm quickly running out of time here, but let's finish this up. Peter is offering hope. Remember, that's the theme of 1 and 2 Peter, is hope. So he's saying, don't be discouraged by the fact it isn't here, but realize that the day of the Lord is coming, and we look at conditions on the earth today, and the American dream is no longer for our children. And we might as well be honest with them. Going to college and getting an engineer's degree is not going to get you a good job in the American dream. It's over. It's over, as Dave Hodges so clearly put it in his article. So, this earth, as we've known it, is going to be changed dramatically. And most of the inhabitants are going to be destroyed. Only a hundred million left, apparently. So he said, verse 11, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all co holy conduct and godliness? Realize, more now than any people has ever had opportunity to know, is that this is coming very soon. We see the signs all about us of Satan's new world order about to be established. It's already being established, it's just not in everybody's consciousness yet, and it has not affected them all the way it is going to yet. It's already affecting us some. 
looking for and hasting to the coming of the day of God, the day of the Lord, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. During this time, he says, the heaven, the sun's going to get seven times hotter if you read about it in the book of Revelation. Now, I don't know that it's going to be 700 degrees, there'd be nothing left, but it's going to feel that much hotter. Just as going from 85 or 90 to 105 feels a whole lot hotter. So what he's talking about is the emotional, spiritual, mental, and physical pressure that is put on people that is going to result in less, I think, I, without doing the numbers, than 5% of human beings will be left alive. Few inhabitants left. It is going to be a purging and a fire and a powerful thing that is coming very, very soon. Satan's wrath will come upon the world, his new world order, and it will be destroyed. And then God's seven last plagues. And when those are done, there won't be many people left. But a new era will come in which our children will grow up in peaceful conditions, have their children, have their lives, and have every opportunity to obey and serve God. So he says, in spite of all this horror that is about to come, let's look beyond it. Verse 13, nevertheless, in spite of the horror that is already starting to come down and is only going to get incrementally worse until it is almost impossible to survive without God's protection, in spite of that, nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Now, where do we read His promise of new heavens and new earth where there will be righteousness? That promise is in Isaiah 65 and 66. That's the only place he can be referring to, because that's the only place that it's mentioned. And there it says that there will be children being born and sinners still being accursed in the new heavens and the new earth. But it will be a time of peace when Christ will rule on the earth and His Father there on His throne. Uh, he with His Father on the throne. So we look for a new heaven and a new earth when the bride is ruling under Christ and peace will be enforced. And you'll hear a voice saying, this is the way, walk you in it, Isaiah thirty twenty one again. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, since we have this hope, the American dream is over, but this spiritual dream from God is not over. It will happen soon. And even those of you who are young and don't have much to look forward to in terms of this earth and its continuity, do have something to look forward to in the very near future. We that look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. Now that tells us right there, we had better be working diligently on living together in peace, as a forerunner of this time. We should be without spot from the world, as James said, unspotted from the world, and blameless, not doing anything for which we can be accused or blamed. 
So he says, this is coming. Be aware. No, the promise is made. So live as if you believe it. Live as if you want to be there. Live a new life according to the dictates of God's commands in the new heavens and new earth. Live like it was here. He is going to give us a microcosm of it in a place of safety for His people that can be used as an example to the whole world. So let's be that way. And account that the long-suffering of our God is salvation. He suffers long with us, thankfully, because we change so very, very slowly. And He has to be patient. Even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Didn't Paul write about the first resurrection, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, many, many other places. So he refers to Paul's writing to give us even more inspiration and instruction. <coughs> as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also other scriptures, to their own destruction. Now, we had a section in Second Peter here where he talked about those who would speak evil of dignitaries who are negative, who are against government, and so on. And then he moves past that and says, put them aside, let's move forward with understanding of what is to be and live together in peace, unspotted and blameless. That's what he tells us to do. And he gives us Paul as another authority who wrote the, about these things as well. But he said, be careful. Some of the things that Paul wrote are very hard to understand. And Peter was an apostle and understood the truth and told us we ought to obey. What part of Paul's writings do people use? And by then, Paul's writings had already been upgraded to Scripture. He said Paul's writings, along with other scriptures, are the ones that they primarily twist. They, now they twist other scriptures, but primarily Paul. So if you find people who do not agree with law and grace, who do not agree that the law which Paul called in Romans 7, 15, holy and just and good... Paul said the law is holy and just and good. Says, well, we, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Heaven or God forbid. No. That isn't hard to understand, is it? But if you go to Galatians, you can easily get turned and twisted and wrestled around to believe that the law is done away with. You can do that with Paul's writings. But you better follow the clear writings of Paul as well as James, Peter, John, Luke, and others to get the truth of the matter. Then you can't be led astray by people who try to give you this Jesus name only, and you're saved, once saved, always saved. It ain't so. He gives us a lot of hope here. Even, in, even as we see the world coming apart in front of us, and we got front row seats now, brethren, it's here. It's here. You're going to see it happen. So this is more alive than it has ever been. It's right before, right at the door. 
You therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things beforehand, beware, lest you also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. There will be those in the church who would lead us astray if we allow them. We had better be very, very careful. Do not get led astray, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ or Emmanuel. Does he say that Herbert Armstrong restored all things and we ought to quit growing? No, right up to the very end, and Herbert Armstrong didn't live that long. He's talking about the day of the Lord coming upon us. Us, this generation. And he tells us, when we face the day of the Lord, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. You can't go back to 1939 on a remedial article written by Herbert Armstrong about government and say that's the final word on it. Someone sent me a letter he wrote to the membership in 1974 when there was a, a, a people leaving the church, including a lot of ministers, in which he explained government. And he said, I didn't understand it in 1939 at all. I was new. Now I do. What's his testament? Get that letter from 1974 if you still don't believe this stuff. Let's get real. There are those who say everything that Herbert Armstrong first believed, we ought to still follow. No, he says keep growing in the grace and knowledge, understanding, right up until the end. So, growth and knowledge did not stop when Herbert Armstrong stopped breathing. We have to continue to grow. I gave you some stuff today that wasn't understood back then. I mean, I preached it many years ago, but for some of you it's brand new. But try to refute it. These scriptures are so very, very plain, and they refute everything we taught before. We have to grow and learn. And I think it gives us a lot more hope when we understand the real truth about it, and I hope that our children can have hope. Not in this world, because it is fading very fast, and the wicked will wither, as Isaiah 40 shows us. That's the message for the end time of him who has a voice crying in the wilderness, is that all flesh is his grass and will wither. So, go to Dave Hodges if you don't believe me. And he sees that the American dream is gone for his son, and he doesn't even know the truth. But he sees it's gone. So now he's trying to redirect his son and give him some kind of hope. But he doesn't really have any hope to give him, does he? But God does. There's a lot of hope in here when you understand that peace and safety will come and it's going to come in the lifetime of you children here who will be a part of the millennium of God if you live through. If you're protected by God because of your parents' obedience, as 1 Corinthians 7 says. And you will have a wonderful life in a peaceful earth. So the American dream is gone, but the dream God puts before us is very alive. 